It is my privilege this morning to introduce Jesse Rudy. Jesse's here because we are celebrating with International Justice Mission, an organization that you'll hear a little more about from Jesse. We're celebrating Freedom Sunday, and Thad, who came with you, I think told me that there are over 5,000, is that right, Thad? Over 5,000 churches in 50 countries that have celebrated Freedom Sunday with Jesse and with us and with International Justice Mission. So it's our privilege to do this. We're going to hear some compelling stuff today. And I want to warn you, this is a little difficult. It's not for the faint of heart. In fact, it's for the stout of heart. So my prayer for us has been not for Jesse. He's awesome. And I knew Jesse would be terrific. My prayer is not even for God's word because God's word is God's word. But my prayer is for us that our hearts would break. And I think your heart will. Jesse's been a friend for a long time. We've, we've known him for years. He was part of Gateway early in our history. Before we even met out here, Gateway in our very early years, in the first chapter of Gateway, we met at a middle school in Herndon. And Jesse and his family lived nearby. Uh, Jesse's a great husband, a great father. He's a great friend. He was active in our church while he was here, worked with our teenagers. And Jesse's also a very talented lawyer. And he had a really good job with a uh, Washington, D.C. law firm. And, I mean, Jesse was on his way to having the American dream. And it was a, really a joy and a privilege to watch him struggle with God's call on his life and what that meant and to see him leave all of that and, and join International Justice Mission. So he told me this morning, it was 10 years ago almost, 10 years ago we sent Jesse to Uganda to do work over there that you'll at least get hints of this morning. And, and then from there, he went to a couple of other places, but he went to the Philippines and you'll hear more about his work with the Philippines this morning. And at the end, he's going to have a challenge for you and I. So I want you to be ready because we need to say yes. So let's pray. So this morning, Lord, we, we give you permission to speak to our hearts. And I pray that you would prepare us to say yes to whatever your call is on us. Speak through Jesse and give his words power and wings that they would fly to our hearts. And uh, do your thing here among us. I, I pray, Lord, that for some of us today, that you would actually speak specifically into our hearts and our lives, how you'd have us step in. And we love you. And we worship you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Jesse. Thanks, Ed. It's really great to be back at Gateway. Like Ed said, we were with Gateway for years before we went overseas. And really, I feel, and I know Amy feels, and I think our whole family feels, that we are still a part of Gateway Church, and that this is our family. And there's actually no place that we come back to that we actually feel more at home. And Ed is right. When I was at Gateway, I was struggling a lot with what I was going to do, and, and saw this over here, and saw that over there, and, and trying to figure that out. And, and when I actually got the phone call from IJM about the possibility of going. There were two men that spoke into my life. There were more than two, but there were two that I really remember. One was my dad. 
And I called my dad and I said, you know, dad, I think I'm going to quit the law firm and I'm going to go move to Africa. And my dad said, are you an idiot? He said, do you know how much lawyers make? And the other person, that man that really spoke into my life was Ed. And it didn't do the opposite. He didn't say, are you an idiot? Of course you're going to go serve the Lord. He said something just like what he said here. He basically said, you need to listen for what God would have for you. And that's what you need to do. Whether it's here, whether it's there, whether it's somewhere else, you need to listen for what God would have for you. And as Amy and I wrestled with that, what God put on my heart was that we serve a God that cares a great deal about justice. We serve a God that cares a great deal about the powerful who take from the weak. And he wants it to stop. And for whatever reason, the way that he built me, that was where he wanted me to plug into the kingdom. And so this morning, I want to talk to you about God's heart for justice. And I'm going to do that by starting with the story of David and Bathsheba. Since you guys all go to Gateway, you're all great Christians. I'm sure you all understand the story and know the backstory, but I'm going to tell you anyway. David was a small shepherd boy. David grew up and became king of Israel. And he became an amazing king of Israel, a completely wildly successful king of Israel. And as a wildly successful king of Israel, David had everything that a man could want. He had power. He had money. Some would say he had riches. He had a palace. He had an army. He had wives and concubines. Not that any of us would want that, but he did. He had everything that he could desire. He even had the explicit favor of God. David wanted for nothing in life. And one spring, while David's army went out to fight for him, to go conquer more lands, to go get him more riches, to go bring him more power, to go bring him more fame and acclaim, David decided he would stay home. And when he stayed home, one morning he walked up to his rooftop to survey everything that he owned because he was the king and owned everything. And he saw a woman taking a bath. And she was beautiful. Now what David should have done is David should have turned around, gone like this, walked back down the stairs. But David didn't do that. Instead, David stopped, took a long look, and liked what he saw. Not only did he covet, he sent his servants over to go find out who she was. The servants came back and they said, this is Bathsheba. She is the wife of one of your soldiers, Uriah the Hittite. Well, Uriah is not here, is he? So he had his servants bring Bathsheba to his home where he slept with her. And as often happens when one man sleeps with one woman, Bathsheba got pregnant. And David was caught in his sin. There was no planned parenthood. There was no way out. David was caught. And so he had to find a way that he could cover up his sin, right? 
And so the first thing he thought of is, I'll bring Uriah back. He'll come home. He'll see his beautiful wife. Maybe she'll take a bath. And I'm sure they'll have sex. But Uriah was so loyal to David that he said, I will not take a conjugal visit while my brothers are out there dying. I will not satisfy myself while others are paying the price. So David's stuck again. So David ratchets up the plan. He says, I know what I'll do. I'll get him drunk. Because when you mix alcohol and a beautiful woman, well, things happen. And so he got him drunk. And even after he'd had a few drinks, Uriah was like, no, I will not satisfy myself while my brothers are out there fighting. I am too loyal to you, David. So David was really caught. And so he ratcheted up the plan again. But this time the plan went dark. And he decided he would have Uriah killed. So he sent Uriah back to the front. And he had his generals put Uriah at the place where the fighting was the fiercest. And then he had them pull back. And he murdered Uriah. With the sword of the Ammonites. And that leads us to the text for this morning from 2 Samuel. The text basically says that the Lord sent Nathan, the prophet, to David. And when Nathan came to David, this is what he said. He said, David, I want to tell you a story. There were two men in a certain town. One was rich and the other was poor. The rich man, he had a very large number of sheep and cattle. But the poor man... He had nothing except for one little ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised that lamb, and it grew up with him and with his children. It shared his food. It drank from his cup. It even slept in his arms. That lamb was like a daughter to him. Now, a traveler came to the rich man's home, but the rich man refrained from taking one of the many sheep and cattle that he had to prepare a meal for that traveler. Instead, he went and took that ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man, and he killed it, and he prepared it for the one who'd come. Now David was in sin, but David was still a man after God's own heart. And David burned with anger. He was pissed. What David said Surely the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and he had no pity. Of course, this is where David's caught. And Nathan's not afraid to spring the trap. Nathan looks at David. I imagine he pauses for effect. And then he says to him, David, you are that man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says to you, David. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all of Israel, and I gave you all of Judah. And if that had been too little for you, David, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord? by doing what is evil in his eyes. 
You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword. And you took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and you took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. I believe that this story tells us a lot about God's heart. We say that David was a man after God's own heart. And I think this is where God planted a lot of his character in David's heart. But before we unpack all of that, I want to do a little mind game with you. We're going to play a little mentalist. So we're going to do an activity. Here's what I want you to do. I want everybody to sit up straight. Nice posture. Everybody feet fat on the floor, hands in your laps. Put down your phones. Close your eyes. Clear your minds of everything. Your to-do list. Other pink elephants. I'm going to say a word, and I want you to just capture whatever comes into your mind, whether it's a color, a word, a picture, a clip, something will come into your mind. All right, everybody's mind clear? All right. The word is justice. Everybody got it? All right. We're going to do a little gateway here. I want you to quickly groupletize and tell your neighbor what came into your mind. Go. All right, now we're going to play a little mind game. I'm going to guess what the picture was in your mind. Go. You're like my kids who are sitting back here. Probably what popped into your mind was something like fairness, equity. My kids are incredibly just people after dinner. If I come out with these three cupcakes for those three kids, they'll tell me about injustice. Because they know that injustice is all about fairness, right? And I do think fairness is important, and I think equity is actually a good thing. But I don't actually think that it captures the biblical concept of justice. Because Scripture repeatedly tells us that our God is a God of justice, and that He cares deeply about justice and wants to see justice among His people. But at the same time, Scripture never really says that God is fair or that life is fair. Or that God treats everyone the same. In fact, if you read scripture, it actually says the opposite of that. If you look at the passage that we went through this morning, God gives no indication that there's anything unjust about the fact that David is a king and Uriah is a soldier. In fact, God says he's the one that did that. If you read the scripture, it says, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, I... I, being God, anointed you, David, king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you. I took from someone and I gave to someone else. And your master's wives to your arms. I took them too. And I gave you all of Israel and all of Judah. And if that had been too little, David, I would have given you more. He doesn't say that to Uriah. 
Scripture consistently acknowledges that unfairness and inequity are part of life. In Ecclesiastes, Solomon recognizes the reality that some people are born wealthy and smart, and some people are born not wealthy and not really smart. When Jesus describes the kingdom of God through the parable of the talents in Matthew 25, he describes an environment where people have different ability levels and are given different levels of resources to work with. It's not fair. It's not equitable. When Paul describes the body of Christ, he explicitly says, some parts are treated with special honor, while some parts we have to hide. There's nothing equitable about that. Throughout Scripture, God makes it clear that life is not fair and that he does not intend it to be. And yet he describes himself as the God of justice that desperately wants his people to bring justice to this world. And so as a good lawyer, I look at A and B and come to conclusion C, which is that ultimately for God, justice is not about fairness. Now, maybe you're not like my kids. Maybe you're like me. And if you're like me, you see that. For me, this is the picture that comes into my mind when somebody says justice. Actually, it's a little bit more like a movie clip than a picture. So, this is what I see. Slave! You will remove your helmet and tell me your name. My name is Maximus Decimus Meridius, commander of the armies of the North, general of the Felix Legions, loyal servant to the true emperor, Marcus Aurelius. Father to a murdered son, husband to a murdered wife, and I will have my vengeance in this life or the next. I love revenge movies. They are by far my favorite genre of movie. If you have not seen The Magnificent Seven yet, you should definitely see it. It is amazing. There's so much justice being brought through revenge. Truth is, it's probably a little bit of why I joined IJM. Because I thought it was going to be like this every day. And I was going to avenge those people. I think it probably says a whole lot about my character. And while I really do love revenge movies, I don't believe that that is what Isaiah was talking about. When he implored God's people to learn to do right, to seek justice, to encourage the oppressed, to defend the cause of the fatherless, or plead the case of the widow. In Nathan's rebuke of David, you don't hear him say that Uriah will be avenged or Uriah's son will come and kill you. Like, he doesn't do that. And the same God that rebukes David for this injustice also tells his people, do not take revenge, my friends. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Do not repay evil for evil or insult for insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing. 
Because to this you were called, so that you may inherit a blessing. I think Hollywood and our own base instincts tell us that justice and revenge are the same thing. But at its core, I do not believe that justice is about revenge. So, if justice is not about fairness, fundamentally, and it's not about revenge, fundamentally, what is it? Ultimately, I believe when you look through Scripture, you find that justice is about power. More specifically, it's about how power is exercised when that power is not distributed evenly. Life is not fair. In every relationship, someone has more power than someone else. A tiger has more power than a chicken. A king has more power than a soldier. A traffic cop has more power than a motorist. A man in a dark alley typically has more power than a woman. A parent has more power than a child. Amy has more <laughs> power than me. An American living here in Northern Virginia has more power than a child living in the slums in the Philippines. In this world of unequal power distribution, justice occurs when power is exercised in conformity with God's standards of holiness. I kind of find it hard to grab a hold of that concept, so I like to actually look at it the other way. It's easier to, for me to understand what injustice is. Now, there's nothing wrong with a tiger eating a chicken. It's just the way nature works. But we are neither tigers nor chickens. And injustice occurs when a person who has power uses that power to take from the weak the things that God intended for them. Their life, their liberty, their dignity, the fruits of their labor. I'm going to go all Ed Allen on you. If you miss everything else, don't miss this. <laughs> Justice is fundamentally about power. And injustice occurs when someone who has power, the wealthy, the physically strong, uses that power advantage to take from the weak those things that God intended for them, whether it's their life, their liberty, their property, their dignity. And that is where Nathan's rebuke of David is coming from. In that relationship between David and Uriah, David had all of the power. David had all of the money, all of the authority, and all of the resources he could want as king of Israel. Uriah probably didn't even have a soldier's pension. David had all kinds of wives and concubines. Uriah had his one little sheep. David had the authority to dictate whether Uriah went here or there and whether he lived or died, and Uriah was subject to David's power. David was a tiger. 
and Uriah was not. And what did David do with that power? He used it to take the love of Uriah's life to satisfy his own desires. He used it to take Uriah's dignity by trying to get him drunk to sleep with his own wife. He used it to take Uriah's life by having him murdered by the Ammonites. He used his power to take all of these things from Uriah. What David did was he used his power to perpetrate injustice. And that was a big deal to God. There were all sorts of things that God could have gotten wrapped around the axle about with David in this story. David had been a peeping Tom. David had literally coveted his neighbor's wife. David had committed adultery. David had committed murder. But these aren't the things that got to God. Christians are really funny because we read the story of David and Bathsheba and we get all focused on the sex. Nathan didn't come and tell David a story about a guy who slept around and was subjected to an STD as the judgment of God. Nathan came to David and told him a story about a powerful man who used his power to take from a weak man. He told him a story about injustice. Because that's where God's anger was. And God's anger pours out and he says, You are the man, David. I anointed you king of Israel. I gave you everything. And seriously, if you'd wanted more, I would have given it to you. I gave you all of the power, and you took that man's only sheep. How could you despise me that way? God's heart for justice and his hatred of injustice is consistent throughout Scripture. Basically, every Old Testament prophet from Amos to Zechariah declares God's hatred for injustice and his desire to see justice among his people. And in case the Israelites didn't get it over the course of you know, 700 years, Jesus makes it crystal clear when he rebukes the Pharisees in Matthew 3. He says this, Woe to you, teachers of the law, you Pharisees, you hypocrites, you give a tenth of your spices, your mint, your dill, your cumin. In other words, you do a really great job of tithing. But you have neglected the weightier matters of the law. Justice, mercy, faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but you swallow a camel. I did the math. Camel weighs about as much as a billion gnats, give or take. This is how Jesus sees the weightier matters of the law. Justice, mercy, faithfulness. But I think if that's all true, Jesus cares that much, I think it's fair for us to ask, What are you going to do about it? Do you have a plan? Because there's been injustice basically since Cain and Abel. When Cain took the life of his brother because he was stronger. 
And it hasn't ended. And it didn't end when you were here, Jesus. So what are you going to do about it? Right now, on this planet today, the best estimates hold that there are 40 million people who are slaves. That means in our world today, right now, there are 20% more slaves in the world than there are Canadians. There are more slaves in the world today than there have been at any point in time in human history. If you take all of the slaves who were transported from Africa to the Americas over the course of 400 years of the transatlantic slave trade, you have to multiply that number by four to achieve the number of slaves that are walking the planet today. And I want to be really, really clear here. I'm not talking about some metaphorical form of slavery. I'm not talking about people that work in slave-like conditions. I'm not talking about the guy who had to pull a double at Starbucks and feel like he's oppressed. I'm talking about one human being owning another human being and making them do whatever they want because they own them, slavery. I'm talking about kids like Kumar. Kumar's dad had a debt. Kumar's dad died. As a result, Kumar was sold into slavery to pay that debt until we found him in a brick kiln where he was literally doing what the Israelites were doing, doing hard labor in brick and mortar. I'm talking about kids like Gideon. Gideon and his brother were sold to a fisherman in Ghana, forced to swim, forced to learn to swim by being thrown over the boat, to dive down to untangle the nets. We rescued Gideon We're still looking for his brother. I'm talking about Marco and Gabby. Zed said, I started my career with IJM in Uganda, spent five years there, and then spent two years in the Philippines. In the Philippines, our team rescued children out of bars and brothels and massage parlors where they were being bought and sold for sex. Shortly after I arrived, we came across Marco and Gabby's case. And Marco and Gabby's case was unique because it was the first cyber sex trafficking case that I had ever seen. Now, you might not know what that is because it's a new thing. And we're just trying to figure it out right now. But really, basically, at its core, what it is, is it's the world's newest form of slavery. And it's one of the darkest and most evil things that one human being can do to another human being. Basically, it works like this. Some guy here in northern Virginia, living in his mom's basement, gets into child pornography. And in the 21st century, if you get into child pornography, you don't order magazines. You go on the internet. And you find images of kids. And you find video clips of kids. And eventually, you find yourself in chat rooms, talking with other people about videos of kids and on Google Chat and Facebook and any other social media. You might even find yourself on the dark web if you don't want to be caught. 
And eventually what happens is this guy in northern Virginia comes across somebody in the Philippines. And they get to talking and they share some pictures and some stories. And eventually what happens is the guy in northern Virginia says, you know what I'd really like to see? I'd like to see a seven-year-old boy raping a two-year-old girl. Can you make that happen for me? Actually, I'd like to wear one of these little earpieces so that I can direct the action. And that pimp in the Philippines goes into the slum and he finds one of those kids he owns and he brings them back. And he makes them do whatever that man in Northern Virginia wants him to do because he owns them. Right now, U.S. law enforcement is sending thousands of cybersex cases to the Philippines every month. When I left, it was 6,000 a month the NBI was receiving from the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. And in those cases that we assisted with, about 90% of the victims were children. About 60% of them were preteen, 12 and under. Kids as young as two months old. That is today's reality. And so I think it is fair for us as God's children who have read these scriptures over and over and over again to say, God, if you care that much, and if this is reality, I think it's fair for us to ask, do you have a plan? Because I can't hold that you care, and I can't hold that this is true if there isn't a plan. Fortunately, I think there is a plan. And to see that plan, we're going to move a little bit further back into Scripture, to Exodus 1. In Exodus 1... The Israelites were living in Egypt, and they were intimidating the Egyptians, and so the Egyptians enslaved them. Scripture says, so the Egyptians put slave masters over the Israelites to oppress them with forced labor. But the more the Israelites were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread them, and so they worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar, and with all kinds of work in the field. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. They made them slaves. Just like Kumar. But God saw the injustice that was being done to Israel, and so he calls on Moses to engage. In the third chapter of Exodus, the scriptures tell us that the Lord said to Moses, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I, the God of the universe, have come down to rescue them from the hands of the Egyptians. So now go, Moses. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. What God is saying is, 
I saw their injustice. I have heard their cries, and I hated it. I am going to rescue them. There is a plan. I have a plan, and my plan is you. So now go. Take action and bring justice. The scriptures are full of God's people crying out to God for justice. And they are just as full of God crying right back to his people. You bring justice. You are my plan. Whether it's Amos or Micah or really anyone in the Bible whose name ends in Aya or Ea. The message is the same. God, bring us justice. My people bring justice. Now that looks different now than it looked for the Israelites. A lot of things in Scripture look different now than they looked at the time that they wrote it. It doesn't make them less true. For the Israelites, thousands of years ago, it looked like Moses' story. Some guy in a robe with a stick that turned into a snake and talking about plagues. In the 21st century, it looks more like Marco and Gabby's story. So I'm going to have Marco tell his story quickly. My name is Margo, I am seven. Superman. Superman has the best job ever. He gets to fight crime. I want to be like Superman and protect my sister from the bad guys. She's my best friend. Mom says if I work hard enough, someday my dream will come true. I tell Gabby she is safe when I put my cape on her. Nothing can hurt her then. I tell her to think of birds. They are free and can fly away. I wonder if one day I can grow wings like a bird and fly. Maybe as fast as Superman. Maybe one day me and Gabby can raise him. I ever meet Superman. I would want to ask him one question. Did he ever have to hurt the ones he loved the most?
tell me that I will make a good sidekick and that Superman will want me to fight crime with him because they say even Superman needs a little help sometimes. Like Ed said, we're kind of diving into hard stuff today. It's not for the faint of heart. What I find when people watch that video is that a couple of things can happen. One, if you're like me, that picture of gladiator starts running in your head and you want to go all IGM black ops on them. Brothers, it just feels too much. You hear the big numbers, you see that it's really bad, and it's just too much, and it's too dark, and you just go down the hole, and you can't come back up. But that would only be the first half of the story. Because the point of the story is not how dark it is. The point of the story is that Marco and Gabby are safe. And at the end of that, it says that there are 120 like them. That's because we made that movie last year. There are 350 of them. The point of the story is not that it's dark. It's that there is a plan. That plan isn't Moses. That plan isn't plagues. That plan is a small team of NBI agents that are right now out there investigating and finding these kids and bringing them out of that place of darkness. The plan is that those NBI agents would be supported by a larger team of IJM professionals, investigators, attorneys, social workers, who actually can get them the intelligence where they need, get them the training that they need, and actually assist them with the rescue to extract those children and bring them from darkness to light. The plan is that that team of IGM professionals would be supported by an even larger collection and team of freedom partners who leverage the power that they have to bring rescue. This morning, I want to make an ask. I want you all to be part of that plan. I want Gateway to be part of that plan. That doesn't mean that you're all going to become undercovers next week. You don't want that. I don't want that. None of us want that. But I do want you to join the team and become a freedom partner. Justice is about power. And whether you believe it or not, you are some of the most powerful people in the world. Just because of where you live, I know that you have more financial power than Marco and Gabby could even dream of.
Because you live in the United States of America, you have access to the most powerful government in the world, just like Moses did. And because you are a part of the body of Christ, you have access to a power that is greater than any of this. And being a freedom partner allows you to leverage that power, to leverage your financial power by giving. Freedom partners give $24 a month or more to make sure that we can go out and do that work. Freedom partners join us in advocacy to make sure that the U.S. government is allocating resources to go to the places that need to go so that law enforcement can rescue these children. Freedom partners join us in prayer monthly, daily. We gather every day at 11 o'clock for prayer because we believe that this is God's weight, not ours, but it is our work. And so I would ask that you all join us and become freedom partners. There's a couple ways to join the team. First, if you're technologically savvy like Pete Kim, go to www.ijm.org backslash FP and you can sign up online. If you're more like me, there's an envelope. You can fill that out. And you can either leave it with Thad in the back or, well, let's leave it with Thad in the back. If for some reason you can't get it done today, Ed said that you could drop it in the offering plate next week and they'd get it back to us. But there is no time like the present. When you make a good ask like that, what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to give people a little bit of time to think about it and to actually do it. So I'm going to actually invite you to do it right now. So here's what we're going to do. You can pull out your phones and sign up. You can pull out the envelope and sign up. Or you can fiddle with your phone so other people think you're signing up while you're checking the scores. Either way, I'm going to fill the time by reading my favorite scripture from Isaiah 58, which I think paints the way that God wants to see us engage in this fight for justice. Prophet Isaiah says this, Is this not the kind of fasting that I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and to untie the cords of the yoke. To set the oppressed free and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked, to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. If you do this, then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here am I. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and the malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light gateway will rise in the darkness. Your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and he will strengthen your frame. You'll be like a well-watered garden 
like a spring whose waters never fail. Your people, these people, will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up age-old foundations. You will be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. What God is saying over and over to his people, whether it's the Israelites or it's us today, is you are my people. I am calling you to respond to injustice. I will be there for you. My glory will be your rear guard. I will strengthen your frame. But you have to engage in the fasting that I have chosen. You have to untie the cords of that yoke. You have to set the oppressed free. You are God's plan to end injustice. And it's my prayer that you will leverage all the power that God has given you to be part of that plan. Thank you. So I want you to give 30 minutes this week, just one day when you're on your way to work, and turn off the radio and say, what do you want me to do, God? Because I'm the plan. It was really great having you, and thanks for coming and helping us celebrate Freedom Sunday. Let's give Jesse a round of applause. Thank you, Jesse. Super good having you, Gateway. Go in peace and have a great day.